for those of us who are going to opt in for adult church, we're going to be in Genesis 26, which Evans just read for us, a fascinating, strange passage. Genesis 26, it's on page 20 in your pew Bible. It's where we'll be as we continue in our winter series looking at the life of Abraham. Let me pray for us as we turn to Genesis 26. Heavenly Father, please speak to us through the life of Isaac, Jacob's father, Abraham's son. And as we look at him, teach us what it means for the faith to be passed down. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was getting my hair cut on Friday, so I went into the barber shop. It was busy, and I had to wait my turn. And as I did, I realized I was sitting next to a dad that was waiting for his young son to finish his haircut. The young boy was in the chair right in front of me. And the, the barber finally uh, spun the chair around so the dad could get a good look at the boy. You know, the boy's at that age where he doesn't know if he got a good haircut. The parent has to evaluate it. And with a affirming nod, the dad let the barber know, job well done. And I couldn't help but notice um, as this father and son looked at each other with both with fresh haircuts, that the son was a spitting image of the dad. He looked just like him, just 30 years younger. You know, it, a father doesn't have to do much to pass on his looks to his son. Nature just kind of takes care of that. But what if this father wanted to pass on to his son something else? Maybe it maybe a skill or a vocation, like engineering or practicing law or being a farmer. Well, then he'd have to teach the boy many things. What if he decided he wanted to pass on to his son character, being patient, being kind, being strong, being hardworking? Well, then he would have to model some things. But what if as he looked at his young son, there was something different he wanted to pass on to him? that in his heart what he wanted most was to pass on to the boy his faith. He looked at his son and he thought of all the things I'd want him to have the relationship with God that I have living in his heart. I'd want him to know God like I do, to hear his voice like I do through his word, to be able to pray to him, to know the hope I have in his son, Jesus Christ. If he wanted to pass this on to his son, what would he have to do? How would he give the boy his faith? You know, this is one of the major questions that hangs over the book of Genesis. The transmission of faith. Will it, how will it be passed from one generation to the next? You see, Genesis isn't just a book about beginnings. You know, the word Genesis means beget or beginning, and it is a book of beginnings, the beginning of the world, the beginning of sin, beginning of humankind, beginning of God's people, the beginning of God's plan for salvation. But when you study it carefully, you understand that it is just as much about transmissions. In fact, the whole structure of Genesis is built around genealogies, 10 of them, begging the question, 
Will this faith, which begins with Abraham, will it be able to be passed down to children? I mean, on one level, there's a tension in Genesis. Will the patriarch be able to sire a son? That's certainly felt in the life of Abraham. But as soon as he does, the question then becomes, will he be able to spiritually pass on the faith? And I think this is a relevant question for us. Of all the things you would want for your children, of all the things we would want as a church for the next generation, wouldn't we want to give them faith? And if we want that, do we know how to do it? Do we know how it's transmitted? Well, this is the theme. This is the driving theme of Genesis 26, which we'll look at today. Genesis 26 is the only place, the only chapter in Genesis fully dedicated to Isaac. Isaac, as we saw last week, is the father of Jacob and Esau. He's married to Rebekah. And if you think about the context of Genesis 26, last week in Genesis 25, we saw the birth of Isaac's two sons. They're twins, Jacob and Esau. They were born into conflict. In Genesis 27, which we'll look at next week, that conflict erupts when Jacob steals his brother's blessing. In between, we don't even hear from the boys the conflict and tension between the brothers, it's, it's simmering on a back burner. And instead, Moses, who's writing this, asks us to look at Isaac. He wants us to imagine the young boys, Jacob and Esau, looking at Isaac. And the question Moses is, Moses is going to get at with Isaac is, will Isaac now, with Abraham having just died, and Abraham's death is alluded to in our passage, Will Isaac take up the faith? Because if he doesn't, Jacob and Esau have no chance. And as we'll see as we go through this, Moses is asking us right from the get-go to consider Isaac in the shadow of his father Abraham. I mean, right out of the gate in, in verse one. Now there was a famine in the land beside the former famine in the days of Abraham. We don't need that detail. Just tell us there's a famine. He wants us thinking of Abraham. And then again and again in this passage, Abraham will come up. And the stress is to Isaac, Abraham, your father. God says, I want to continue the oath I made with Abraham, your father. Isaac will go down to Gerar, the same place his father sojourned. He will face the same temptation his father faced of playing off his wife as his sister. Isaac will redig wells. Because it's a famine, it's an arid land. And what are the wells? They're the wells his father Abraham has dug. Isaac will end the scene in Beersheba, verse 23 through 25. And that's exactly where Abraham took his son Isaac after the scene on Mount Moriah when he almost sacrificed the boy. And God intervened, Genesis 22. In Genesis 23, Abraham takes his son to Beersheba and makes an altar there. And so Moses is asking us to think of the son in light of the father. And the question simply is, will Isaac take on the faith? Well, he does. And as we walk through this passage, I want to point out to us three channels through which faith flows and comes to life for Isaac. And I think this is relevant for us as we think of being a church through which the faith is passed on. The channels of hearing, of walking, and tasting. Isaac must hear with his own ears, walk with his own feet, and taste with his own mouth 
that the God of Abraham and the God of Sarah is his Lord too. So let's explore these. I think they'll have things to teach us. So first, how is faith transmitted? It has something to do with hearing. So as I mentioned, our passage opens letting us know there's a famine, like the famines that happened in the days of Abraham. And then in verse two, we read, the Lord appeared to him, to Isaac, and he said, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Now I wanna just focus on verse two for a while and this opening, the Lord appeared to him, to Isaac, and said, this is not the first time that Isaac would have heard the word of God. Surely, Abraham would have told his son again and again about the words that God had spoke to him at the beginning of his own faith journey. Back in Genesis 12, God speaks to Abraham. He's living in Mesopotamia. And he says, go to a land I will show you. Leave your kin and family and I will be with you and I will bless you and I will multiply you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless all the families of the earth through you. And this blessing is repeated to Abraham throughout his life. Surely Abraham would have taught this word to his son. So his son had heard the word of God before. But, but something different happens now. And this is what we have to notice. It's not secondhand speaking anymore. This is not Abraham speaking to Isaac. The Lord is directly addressing the man. Verse two, the Lord appeared to him and said. And here's where we have to, I think, grapple with the first key to the transmission of faith. The son must hear with his own ears the word of the Lord. The, the word of God must become personal to the next generation. It must be a personal word to Isaac, and this in two senses. Personal first, because God is actually addressing Isaac. He's speaking to him. But second, it's personal because God's word suddenly implicates Isaac. It's not just a word about nature or about the future. God tells Isaac what to do. This isn't a back and forth. He says, don't go to Egypt. Maybe Isaac wasn't ready to handle Egypt with all its wealth and temptation. Don't go down to Egypt. Go to Gerar and sojourn there. And then God begins to announce, re-announce the blessing that once had been given to Abraham and now it's being given directly from God to Isaac and he realizes his whole future is now bound up. God seals off all horizons. You want to be blessed? You'll either be blessed by me or no one. You want to follow a voice? You'll either follow the voice of the serpent or my voice. But whatever else is happening in Genesis 26, Yahweh is becoming personal to Isaac. And so I think there's just, there's two things to reflect on here um, about what it means for faith to be transmitted. And the first is that the, the father cannot ultimately be the voice of God to the son. He certainly can share the word. 
But at some point, the word has to come with the authority of God himself, specifically addressing Isaac. It's not enough just for Abraham to repeat the word of God. It must come from God. And I think this is both freeing and scary. It's freeing because it means if you're a parent, you ultimately cannot transmit faith to your children. You can't do it. Faith is a gift from God. It must be born between your child and God. You cannot put your faith in them. It does not come through genes. And this means we're not in ultimate control. It also means that if you do everything right and your child walks away from God, it's not ultimately your fault. They're responsible for their own response to God. But it also, and at the same time, means that while the Father does not have power to create faith in the Son, he can, by his example, model it. And by doing so, make it far easier for the boy to hear. You know, it's interesting, at the end of this scene, after Isaac sojourns in Gerar, then into the Wadi of Gerar, or the Valley of Gerar, it's just a dry riverbed there, and then down to Beersheba, where he lands in Beersheba, as I said a moment ago, this is the place his father took him. And it's the place they went after that great scene on Mount Moriah. And after his father took him to Beersheba, we read this in Genesis 21, 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and he called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Now that's significant because the only place, the first place and the only place we find Isaac building an altar to the Lord is where? Beersheba. Verse 23, from there he went up to Beersheba. Verse 25, so he built an altar there and he called upon the name of the Lord and he pitched his tent. We see Isaac by verse 25 having a faith like his father's. And do you see what happened? Isaac simply climbed up into his dad's old chair where he saw his dad do his quiet time a thousand times. And he prayed with the same Bible he saw his dad pray with, with the same lamp on, because Abraham had modeled for him what it means to hear from the Lord. Isaac had to get in the chair. He had to go to Beersheba. He had to build his own altar. But that space in Beersheba was already sacred. He had seen his father kneel and cry out to the everlasting God. He had seen his father model what it means to live under the voice of the Lord. And in a sense, he knew what to do. You know, um, it is a very different thing to kind of hear the word of God and hear the traditions of your parents and hear the traditions of the church kind of as a generic noise that you can kind of drone out. It's a very different thing to have that happen and then realize suddenly that through all that, God is addressing you. Same word before and after and all of a sudden it's personalized. And it's a very different thing to realize that God's word lays forth some sort of moral precepts and a lot of people around you take them seriously. It's an altogether different thing to suddenly realize that these are God's commands on you. And whether you like it or not, you will be evaluated before these. You know, I, um, my last year of college, I took a business law class. It was a big class. The room was stadium seating. It was packed and it was at 8 a.m., 
My professor was Professor Friedman, and he was six foot eight. He played college basketball, and he was a lawyer in Philadelphia, and he was terrifying. And the class was big enough and early enough that you could sit in the back, and his lecturing and his words would become a low drone, and you could kind of daydream. Until, of course, as he liked to do, he would speak to you personally. Mr. Ferguson, we would like to hear your comments on the reading from this week. Please begin in the case that ends on page 485. We're really interested. You see, suddenly you're, you're addressed directly. And this is what happens in people's life if faith is going to become real. You're going to be reading the Bible. You've read these stories so many times. And suddenly, you, it's as the Lord says, Samuel, Sam, Sam. In the parable about the sower and the soil, I am speaking to you. What is the soil of your heart? What will you do with the seeds your father has sown into your life? Sam, the two great commandments to love God and love neighbor, these are the laws for your life. Unless this happens to Isaac, his faith is not real. He's just living off the scraps of his father's table. And so this is the first thing that must happen for faith to be transmitted. The son must hear the voice of the Lord with his own ears. There's a second thing, however. Along with hearing, Isaac has to walk in this passage. He's moving all over Gerar, the valley of Gerar, Beersheba. And with the sense of walking, I think the Lord puts before us, Moses puts before us, the second facet of real faith being transmitted, and that's obedience. Remember in verse five, God says to Isaac, Abraham, your father, obeyed my voice. And he puts the obedience of the boy's father in front of him with striking words. He says in verse five, Isaac, and just picture Isaac hearing this about his dad. Abraham obeyed my voice and he kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. How would that make a son feel? So Isaac, are you gonna make shipwreck of all this? No, Moses is setting before us now the second step of faith, which is obedience. If it will be real, if your faith will be real, Isaac, you will go and you will serve the Lord. But what's fascinating and also terrifying is the first place Isaac goes, Gerar, the Philistines, Abimelech, and the threat of being killed because of his wife and falling into the temptation of saying, well, she's my sister, so please don't hurt me. And God mercifully protecting her through all this. And Abimelech looks out the window. He sees them flirting. He goes to Isaac and says, this is a ruse. She's your wife. Why'd you do this? One of the men could have taken her and incurred guilt on our whole people. Do you know, this is the third time this scene plays out in Genesis. Abraham did it twice, once in Egypt and once in Gerar with Abimelech's very court. You see, and don't miss this, Isaac's path of obedience immediately leads him to strike his foot on the same stone that Abraham did. That cannot be a coincidence. And he falters right where his father did. And God, once again, is merciful. I like to think of Rebecca, 
Um, like Mary, God protecting Mary when she went down to Egypt. Or I like to think of Rebecca as a prefigurement of the church, God protecting his bride in a foreign land. But whatever we may read into this horrible failure on Isaac's part, it's clear that this passage wants us to second deal with the issue of obedience. So let me pause here and simply think about this for a moment. What does it mean that if faith is going to be passed on, the son has to walk in the footsteps of the father, facing his same failures, reckoning with his own obedience? Two things. First, it means that faith comes alive in the next generation only when they take responsibility for it. They take responsibility for being the people of God. You see, when, if God were to speak to you and announce a blessing, as radical as the blessing that he just announced to Isaac, Isaac, I'm gonna make you a great people. I just decided to do it. And I'm going to give you all this land. And I'm going to bless the whole world through you. This would be like a person being born into a royal family or, or landed gentry. You don't have to work, Isaac. I mean, it's all there. And the temptation would be to live with a type of presumption and privilege in an apathetic way, just assuming God was going to take care of you. You see this sometimes in royal families. The older son is born. He knows he has a great wealth coming to him, but he knows the responsibility of leading. Think of Prince William. And then the younger son, Harry. It's like, well, I don't have any responsibility. I'm not called to anything, but I have all this privilege. And it can ruin, it can ruin a man or a woman. And so the first thing Moses is pointing out is the next generation must take responsibility for the faith. And notice just what is at stake with Isaac's obedience or disobedience. It's very interesting. He tries to protect himself by saying, saying Rebecca is his sister. It puts her in harm's way, which by the way, puts the whole line in harm's way. She's the matriarch. And then when Abimelech confronts him, Abimelech says in verse 10, very interestingly, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. Interesting, one of the people lays with your wife, just one, and you bring guilt upon all of us. You know, just, just follow the logic here. Christians do this today. We have a responsibility to speak the truth in love. And so sometimes we won't, we won't speak the truth clearly because we're afraid of the world. This is what happened to Isaac. He was afraid of the Philistines. And so instead we lie or we present something that is a vice as a virtue, thinking by doing that the world will like us and will then help the world out. We don't want to put this burden on them. But you see what happens then, not only do we put ourselves in danger, but we put the world in double jeopardy because then they go on thinking that which is vice is virtue. And if they could ever see, which they will at the day of judgment, they'll say, why did you lie to us? Why, why didn't you tell us? Because we were scared. We wanted you to like us. So there is a responsibility that comes upon Isaac. But the second thing I want to point out, so obedience, taking on the faith and in, in, in walking out requires obedience and, and responsibility. But the second thing that we see here is that the the, the quality of the faith of the father spills over into the life of the son. And this in two ways, both in the sense that Abraham's faith and his obedience is a blessing to Isaac. 
And, and this is clear in verse five. Abraham's obedience creates a space for Isaac to walk under the blessing and into it. All the things a, a parent does, a family does, a church does that is obedient to the Lord carves out room for the next generation. It doesn't guarantee ease for them. I mean, look at Isaac. He still has to dwell in a land where there's a famine. But it carves out space. But at the same time, Abraham's obedience spills as a blessing into Isaac's life. The boy is also haunted by his father's sins. I mean, it, it just can't be a coincidence that the first thing that happens to him is he has to face in the same territory, in front of the same king, the same trial where his father most recently failed. And I think, um, I mean, this is complex, but I think what's important to see here is that the sins of one generation will impact the next, just as the obedience of one. But at the same time, Isaac has to take responsibility. There's nowhere here where Abimelech appears looking out the window and says, Isaac, how could you know any better? You're just doing what your father did. It's not your fault. No, he addresses Isaac. And so there's this complexity where each generation has to reckon with the fact that the sins of our forebearers, they do meet us in real ways, but in such a way that God wants us to take out our own sword and contend with them and deal with them in a way perhaps our fathers didn't. And in all these things, to see the mercy of God at work in the life of his people. So, there's just two things we've seen so far. For faith to come alive in the life of Isaac, he has to hear his father's God with his own ears. He has to walk in his father's footsteps with his own feet. But third, there's something he needs to taste. Along with hearing, along with walking, Isaac needs to taste something. And, and this this takes us into really the second half of this chapter, which is filled with wells and water. I don't know if you noticed that one was red, but 10 different times the word well or water is used. And we realize that, that for Isaac to survive, I mean, keep in mind, there's a famine and the Lord told him he couldn't leave. When God makes him stay in Gerar, he's saying, stay where there's no rain. When he says, go to the Philistines, he's saying, I want to show you I can protect you where you can't create your own safety. And he does. He blesses him. And as he's blessed, the Philistines get threatened by him and they push him out. And suddenly there's this battle for space and wells. And of course there is. These are nomadic people. They have sheep. They grow crops. Access to water is access to life. And so verse 18, Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. So think of the picture. He also gives them the names his father had given him. Abraham's dead. Now Isaac has to fend for himself and find out if he can support his flock and his family and servants. And he doesn't own the land. He has to find water. He digs a well. The men of Gerar battle with him over it, he leaves. He digs another well, the men of Gerar, they quarrel with him over it, he leaves. He digs a third well, and finally the Lord protects him, and he names it Rehoboth, which means space, or place, or home. 
meaning the Lord has made a place for me. And you know, by the end of this episode, an episode that began with the words, there was a famine. Do you know how it ends in verse 32? I'll read it to you. Um, Isaac has just made a peace treaty with Abimelech and his men, and we read, subtle thing Moses puts in there in verse 32, that same day, the same day they made an oath of peace with the Philistines, that same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug, and they said to him, we have found water. I mean, it's just such beautiful writing. Verse one, there's a famine. Verse 32, Isaac, we have found water. What is this part of his journey saying to us? It's saying that for faith to be real in the life of the son, he must not only hear the word of God, he must not only obey the word of God, he must come to a point when by putting real skin in the game, he can step back and say, the Lord is good. As the psalmist said, I have tasted and I have seen that the Lord is good. Isaac has now experientially come to a place where he knows the Lord provides. And he's tasted it. He's put the water on his lips. He's given it to his boys. He's given it to his wife. He's seen the Philistines cower before him. Miracle of all miracles. Not only will we not kill you for your wife, would you please make peace with us? Because we can tell you are the blessed of the Lord. He must have wondered at all this when he went to Beersheba and he built his altar to bless the name of the Lord. So much had happened between Isaac and God during this journey. And I wanna suggest that this is a very important and our final point for what it means to pass the faith on to the next generation. Um, the next generation, your children, the children of our church, are, are going to have to taste and see that the Lord is good in their own soul. They, they are going to have to meet Isaac's great son, Jesus, who really was perfectly obedient, and we really are blessed because of his obedience. Jesus, who actually didn't pawn off his bride to protect himself, the church, but went and died for her, paid the cost for her so he could offer her forgiveness, who sits by a well in John 4 and doesn't have to redig it just to give us human water, but says to the weary Samaritan woman who is run through, not crops, but run through men, run through relationships, been broken on the sharp and jagged edge of the world. And she sits there and Jesus says to her, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, he will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring welling up to eternal life. The next generation needs to know in the depth of every famine what it means to drink the water of life from the Son of God. To see in Jesus the faith of Abraham perfected. To see in Jesus the faith of Isaac perfected. To see in Jesus Abraham's wells redug. Friends, you can't buy that for your kids. 
You can't make them have it. I know you wish you could. This is one of the most painful points in a church. You do everything right. You try to help them hear. You try to help them obey. And there's just, there's no water on their lips. Friends, Isaac's sojourn happens, most of it, after his father dies. Every one of us, we have to walk this path of faith at some point with our own two feet. And maybe, like Jeremiah the prophet says, we have to realize we've been digging crack cisterns and they don't satisfy. And you have to wait till your kids get to the very bottom and they sip and they suck on the dregs and they're miserable. And you have to just pray and hope that they'll remember all the times you told them that you have tasted and you have seen and the Lord is good. So my dear friends, model for the next generation how you hear from the Lord. If you've never talked to your adult child about the Lord, buy C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, buy two copies, and tell him you're doing a Zoom meeting once every week and you're gonna read it together. Why? Because you're his dad or you're his mom. If you have kids at home, make sure they see where you pray. Let them see your Bible. I talked to a brother this week. He told me his father takes a Bible, does a yearly Bible reading plan, and he makes notes in it, not to himself, but to his son, and then passes that Bible on to his son. So the rest of his life, he opens it and he sees where his father heard from the Lord. And let us as a church walk the path of obedience, knowing that our sins will in fact impact the next generation. And our obedience will create space for them. But most of all, let us bear witness to those places in our lives where we have tasted and we have seen that the Lord is good. Isaac was a chip off the old block. But the most important thing that ever ha happened to Isaac was not that he was Abraham's son, but that he became a son of God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, we pray, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, Jesus Christ, God of Blaise Pascal, God of Jonathan Edwards, God of Tim Keller, God of John Yates, God of my own mom and dad, I pray you would grip the hearts of the next generation and that we would be humble and obedient as a church in helping them meet you. Amen.